This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged reading of Martin Luther's sermon for Trinity Sunday. This is from the John Nicholas Lenker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is John chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came unto him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except one be born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except one be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born anew. The wind bloweth where it will, and thou hearest the voice thereof, but knoweth not whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou the teacher of Israel, and understandest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that which we know, and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one hath ascended into heaven, but he that descendeth out of heaven, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth may in him have eternal life. This concludes our scripture text. Today we celebrate the festival of the Holy Trinity to which we must briefly allude so that we may not celebrate it in vain. It is indeed true that the name Trinity is nowhere to be found in the Holy Scriptures, but has been conceived and invented by man. For this reason it sounds somewhat cold, and we had better speak of God than of the Trinity. This word signifies that there are three persons in God. It is a heavenly mystery which the world cannot understand. I have often told you that this, as well as every other article of faith, must not be based upon reason or comparisons, but must be understood and established by means of passages from the Scriptures. For God has the only perfect knowledge and knows how to speak concerning Himself. The great universities have invented manifold distinctions, dreams, and fictions by means of which they would explain the Holy Trinity and have made fools of themselves. We shall therefore quote only passages from the scriptures in order to determine and establish the divinity of Christ. In the first place, we quote from the New Testament, where we find many proof texts, for instance from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that hath been made. Now. If he is not made, but is himself the maker, he must indeed be God. John also says afterwards, And the word became flesh. Again, we quote from the Old Testament, where David says in Psalm 110, 
Jehovah saith unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. That is, sit upon the royal throne and be a lord and king over all creatures, all which must be subject to thee, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In Psalm 8 we read, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him but little lower than God, and crownest him with glory and honor. Thou makest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. That means, thou hast made him lord of the whole world. Paul explains this passage in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 2 in a masterly way. Now, if God had set him at his right hand, and made him lord of all in heaven and on earth, he must indeed be God. For it would not be fitting that he should set him at his right hand and give him as much power over all creatures as he himself possesses if he were not God. God will not give his glory to another, as he says in Isaiah 48. Thus we have here two persons, the Father, and the Son to whom the Father has given all that is subject to him. To sit at the right hand of God means to be over all God's creatures. He must therefore be God to whom is given all this. God has also commanded us not to worship strange gods. Now we read in John that, according to the will of God, we should honor the Son even as we honor the Father. These are the words in John 5 where Christ says to the Jews, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father doing. For what things soever he doeth, these the Son also doeth in like manner. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that he himself doeth. And greater works than these will he show him, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth the dead, and giveth them life, even so the Son also giveth life to whom he will. For neither doth the Father judge any man, but he hath given all judgment unto the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father that sent him. These are, to my mind, truly clear and distinct words concerning the divinity of Christ. Now, as God commands that we should have only one God and should not render to any other creature the glory that belongs to God and is due him, and yet he gives this glory to Christ, Christ must indeed be God. Paul says in Romans 1, The gospel he promised afore through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, according to the flesh he began to exist, but according to the Spirit he existed from eternity, although it was not clearly understood before. As it was not necessary that we should make a God of him, but only that we should declare and understand that he is the Son of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, as Christ himself says in John 16. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth. And elsewhere the evangelist writes, namely in John 17, These things spake Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he saith, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all flesh, 
that to all whom thou hast given him he should give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they should know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou did send, even Jesus Christ. I glorify thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world began. We also read in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He is truly enthroned king of all. He is God's child, and the world is subject to no other prince or king. Likewise, in another psalm, namely Psalm 45, he says, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of equity is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. God will make no one such a king who is not God, for he will not give the reins out of his hands. He alone will be the Lord over heaven and earth, death, hell, the devil, and all creatures. If he then makes Christ Lord of all that is created, Christ must truly be God. We can therefore have no surer foundation for our belief in the divinity of Christ than that we enwrap and enclose our hearts in the declarations of the Scriptures. The Scriptures gradually and beautifully lead us to Christ, first revealing Him to us as a man, then as the Lord of all creatures, and finally as God. Thus we are successfully led to the true knowledge of God. But the philosophers and the wise men of this world would begin at the top, and so they have become fools. We must begin at the bottom and gradually advance in knowledge, so that the words of Proverbs 25 may not apply to us. It is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search out their own glory is grievous. Our faith in these two persons, the Father and the Son, is therefore sufficiently established and confirmed by passages from the Scriptures. But of the Holy Spirit, the third person, we read in Matthew 28, that Christ sent forth his disciples, saying to them, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Here divinity is also ascribed to the Holy Spirit, since I may trust or believe in no one but God, and I must trust only in one who has power over death, hell, the devil, and all creatures, whose authority withholds them from harming me, and who can save me. None will suffice except one in whom I may trust absolutely. Now, Christ in this passage commands that we should also believe and trust in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he must be God. In the Gospel according to John, Christ speaks frequently to his disciples of the Holy Spirit, his power or existence. In Genesis 1 we read, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This passage is not as clear as the one last quoted. The Jews attack it and affirm that the word spirit in Hebrew signifies wind. David in Psalm 33 says, By the word of Jehovah were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the spirit of his mouth. Here it is quite clear that the Holy Spirit is God, because the heavens and all their hosts were made by him. And again David says in Psalm 139, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. 
Now this cannot be said of any creature, and it is everywhere and fills the whole world, but only of God the Creator. Therefore we cling to the Scriptures, those passages which testify of the Trinity of God, and we say, I know very well that in God there are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but how they can be one I do not know, neither should I know it. This may suffice for the first part. Now we will come back to the Gospel and say something on that. In this Gospel you see clearly what reason and free will can do. You may see it distinctly in Nicodemus, who was the best of the best, a prince and leader of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees held first place in their day. They were, however, in the highest places in spiritual life, altogether blind and dead before God, however holy, wise, good, and mighty they may have been seen considered by men. The longer Nicodemus associates with Christ, the less he understands Christ, although he is expected to understand only earthly things and the manner of Christ's death. Reason is so blind that it can neither perceive nor understand the things of God, nor all things which properly belong to its own sphere. This is a blow to nature and human reason, which have been rated so high by philosophy and the wise men of this world. The wise ones have said that reason always strives to attain the best. God has here given us an example showing that even the best in nature must fail. In instances where human nature is at its best, it is blind, not to speak of its envy and hatred. Christ is here demonstrated by examples, words, and deeds that human reason is altogether blind and dead before God. Hence it cannot appreciate divine things nor desire them. Now Nicodemus, who is a pious and well-meaning man, cannot grasp the work and word of God. How then would Annas and Caiaphas? He comes to the Lord at night, which he did from fear, not desiring to be called a heretic by others. From this we may conclude that he was in nature an old Adam, cowardly seeking Christ by night, and that he did not yet possess the true light. If he had been a new man, he would have come in the bright light of day, fearing no one. Because of his hypocrisy, the Lord deals sharply with him, cutting off his salutation and all further speech, as we shall see. Jesus says in verse 10, Art thou the teacher of Israel, and understandest not these things? In other words, you surely should know this, because you are one of those who teach the people, but I see that you know nothing of it. That which I have explained to you, namely, that we must be born anew, you should have taught the people. But you have taught them the contrary, have endeavored to know whence the wind comes and whither it goes, have concerned yourselves about its blowing and other useless things, but the things most necessary to you and the people you have disregarded. Hear then what I tell you. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. As if Christ said, Should I point out to you how these things can be? It cannot be done. You should believe me, since you say yourself that I am a teacher come from God. When I have said that a man must be born anew and that all your works are worthless, it cannot be demonstrated so that you may see it with your eyes. It can only be explained in words. If you believe it, you will understand it. But Nicodemus did not understand it. Therefore the Lord, disclosing more and more to him his folly, continues, If I told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I have only told you of earthly things, how we must all come to naught, that man is dust and must return to dust, how the wind blows, and yet you do not understand it. 
What would you know if I should tell you much about God? I have spoken to you about insignificant things, and you do not understand them. How would you understand if I told you that our immortal bodies after death will shine as bright and clear as the sun? And what if I told you of what comes after death? You would understand this much less. He then explains to Nicodemus a few of these heavenly things and continues, And no one hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven. Reason does not understand what this means, for it is a sermon from heaven, as if Christ would say, The Son of Man came upon earth and yet remained in heaven. He again ascended into heaven, that is, he became Lord of heaven and earth and all creatures. Know then that I am he who has come down, who even descended into hell and yet remained in heaven. For when Christ was in death he lived. When he was considered the most insignificant and despised of men, he was before God regarded as the most worthy of honor and the greatest. He ascended again into heaven after he rose from the dead, assumed again all power, and has become Lord of all creatures on earth. No one has followed him in this. We are truly also in death, but at the same time we are in heaven like Christ. Sin and death rule within us, but they have not been able to conquer Christ. Nay, in his hand and in his life are life and death, as he says in John 10. Therefore doth the Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. No one but Christ obtains such power that all things are subject to him. Although before the world he was dead, yet he lived before God his Father. And although before the world he was in great disgrace and shame, he was yet greatly honored by God. But all this he did only for our sakes. For in the fall of our first father Adam, we are all fallen. Christ had to atone for this fall by his disgrace, shame, ignominy, and death, so that we might again obtain honor in life. Christ rebukes Nicodemus here again, as he had done before when he said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He says in effect, You presume to ascend into heaven and to escape from hell, but you will fail. Flesh and blood cannot enter into heaven. Only he ascends into heaven who has come down from heaven, so that the control of all may be in his hands. He can destroy all that lives, make alive all that is dead, and makes poor all that is rich. It is then here determined that nothing can enter into heaven that is born of the flesh. But Christ's ascent into heaven, as well as his descent to us, was for our benefit, so that we who are carnal might also enter heaven. Yet it is only on the condition that first our mortal body must perish. In short, we cannot effect anything by our own works, for God will save us only through Christ, who alone is the ladder by means of which we ascend into heaven. How this ascent into heaven is granted to us, how it becomes our own, Christ explains when he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth may in him have eternal life. What does Christ mean by this? He means that all who would enter heaven and follow him must become new creatures. He ascended into heaven that we might follow him. The narrative to which Christ refers is written in Numbers 21. And Jehovah sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against Jehovah and against thee. 
pray unto Jehovah that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and Jehovah said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a standard. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he seeth it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and set it upon the standard. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he looked unto the serpent of brass, he lived. Christ uses this scripture to point to himself. His reference is as if to say, Just as the Jews in the desert who were bitten by fiery serpents were saved by looking upon the serpent of brass, which Moses set upon a standard, so it is also with regard to me. None who looks upon me will perish. That is, all who have an evil conscience are tormented by sin and death should believe that I have come down for their sakes and have ascended again. Then neither sin nor death shall harm them. Nay, they shall not perish in all eternity. Whoever would enter heaven and be saved must be saved by this serpent, which is Christ. Otherwise he will perish. Thus this gospel condemns free will and everything of human accomplishment and points only to this serpent. The spiritual significance of the narrative in Numbers is this. The serpent which bit and poisoned the Jews is sin, death, and an evil conscience. I know that I must die, and that I am under the power of death. I cannot free myself and must remain in this state until a dead serpent is set up for me, one which, because it is not alive, can harm no one, but rather benefit, as did the serpent of Moses. Now, this is Christ. I see him hanging on the cross, not beautiful nor greatly honored. If his death upon the cross were in fashion to win for him the plaudits of men, the flesh might say that he deserved his honors and his exaltation by his works. But I see him hanging in disgrace on the cross, like a murderer and malefactor. Thus reason must say that he is cursed before God. The Jews believed that this was true, and they could only consider him the most cursed of all men before God and the world. For they remembered this passage in the Law of Moses, He that is hanged is accursed of God, as it says in Deuteronomy 21. Moses had to set up a serpent of brass, which looked like the fiery serpents, but did not bite or harm anyone, nay, it rather saved the people. Thus Christ also has the form and the appearance of a sinner, but has become my salvation. His death is my life. He atones for my sin and takes away from me the wrath of the Father. The living fiery serpent is within me, for I am a sinner, but in him is a dead serpent. He was indeed regarded a sinner, but he never committed any sin. If then man believes that the death of Christ has taken away his sin, he becomes a new man. The carnal, natural man cannot believe that God will gratuitously take away and forgive all our sins. Reason argues in this manner. You have sinned. You must also atone for your sin. Then it invents one good work after another and endeavors to take away sin by good works. But the gospel of Christ is, If you have fallen in sin, another must atone for you. If a man believes this, he becomes one with Christ and has everything that is Christ's. This gospel then signifies that our works are nothing, and that all human power can do is useless, but faith in Christ does it all. Amen. This has been a presentation of classical Lutheran preaching from the sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Lenker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.
You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> 